0: Welcome to Cycling Explained, hosted by Brent from Pro Cycling Bets. Cycling Explained attempts to demystify the world of professional cycling and delves into the variables surrounding the nuanced layers of the sport itself. In each episode, we'll explore one variable and how it affects the riders, the teams, the tactics, and the betting markets. Want to begin to watch cycling but don't know where to start? Interested in betting on races but have no idea how to find good value picks? You've come to the right place. Hey everyone, it's Cycling Explained with Brent and Nick today. Here, we're going to be talking about the race and the peloton in this episode. And Nick is kind enough to share his time and ask me questions, and for us to both discover more about cycling as a sport. Awesome, excited
1: to be here and learn more about cycling from you, Brent.
0: Sweet. Uh, do you have any questions off the bat that you've thought about with respect to the race or do we want to just start talking about one of the, one of the core topics here?
1: Yeah. One thing I wanted to kind of ask you about that I heard a lot while watching a bit of the Giro was the different jerseys. Um, I think there's different jerseys for different, different riders of different jerseys for each, each um, part of the race. So what's, what's up with that and what do you mean?
0: Yeah. Jerseys are potentially one of the most interesting aspects and, Also very hard to understand because each race has its own jerseys. So a lot of the French races. So right now the Criterium de Dauphine is on and it kind of borrows the jersey colors from the Tour de France. So it will have like the Malheur Vert or the green jersey for the rider with the most points, or of course you probably know the yellow jersey for the rider with uh, the most, um, like the, the GC winner. But then again, you have the Giro, which is like has the pink jersey. And the 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 funny thing where all these jerseys come from is it depends, right? But it it seems to be newspaper based. So these newspapers all started these races in the nineteen thirties or earlier. So the pink jersey was from this newspaper that used to print their like articles on pink paper. And since Mm. they were the main sponsor of the race, the Giro's jersey is pink, and that's why you see pink everywhere and like all that jazz. And the same thing with the yellow jersey; it used to be like yellow paper and. You know, mm-hmm, wow. uh, that's where the, the jerseys come from. And then each race has usually three main jerseys. It depends. Some races mm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but you have the general classification jersey, which is mm-hmm. the rider who is currently winning the race. And so they'll they'll wear that whoever's currently winning. And that's why you usually have a prologue, so like that short time trial at the start of major races is to kind of like set who is going to wear that Jersey gotcha. uh, for the next stages. It used to be that the previous winner from the previous year would wear the Jersey going into the prologue. Mm-hmm. I think you might still be able to do that, but it's not done as often. And then with respect to the jerseys, you then have the points Jersey. So points is probably in every other major stage race. It's basically, mm-hmm. You get points for winning a stage, you get points for winning intermediate sprints, which are scattered throughout the stage to make it more interesting for viewers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that color is green for the Tour de France. And it's, uh, I can't believe we were just watching Giro, but it's some other color for the Giro. And then you have the finally another major jersey you have at most races, but not all of them, is the King of the Mountains, because if there's no mountains, then you're not going to have a King of the Mountains jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there's no hills or whatever, so at the uh, at the quite well known as the polka dot polka dot jersey, it's probably yeah, people's yeah. like favorite jersey to wear actually, because it's kind of like a, a romantic kind of appeal to the person mm-hmm. who's wearing that. King of the Mountains jersey. It's uh, it's a very claim to fame. It's uh, sexier a little bit, you know. Like you Mm -hmm. you you topple the mountain, Uh, and then other races will have similar ones. So it's I think it's blue polka dots for the Giro or the velta I think it's the velta has the blue polka dots, and then it's a different color for the um, other one. And so you can have a rider who has all three of the jerseys, uh, and then it will be the Second place rider in that category to wear the jersey because one oh, rider can't wear, yeah, three jerseys. <laughs> kind of you, just, you have some guy who's like, you know, like
1: uh, <laughs> overheating wearing all that gear, yeah, <laughs> <Overeating>. <laughs>
0: yeah, he, he's just like, oh, um, but no, no, it would go to the the next rider. So, for example, uh, P- Pogacar, uh, would have the jersey for a while, the tour last year. Uh, And then since he's the youngest rider, he'd also have says usually a young rider Jersey as well at the major Mm -hmm. races, which Mm -hmm. is white for the tour de France. But since he was already wearing the yellow Jersey, it would go to uh, rider X who is the next youngest and the next on GC who was closest to winning. And what's interesting about the jerseys is it really defines the race in the first few days, uh, I thought I've been thinking a lot about this, but races are heavily black- backloaded for two reasons. Well, <laughs> it, it, it leads to two things happening. But when you heavily backload a race, a lot of the GC contenders tend to stay very close together until the hard effort at the end. And why race organizers want this is because they know, based on statistics, that like people don't watch races once a leader a gap mm-hmm. has separated by so much. So gotcha. to have the GC contenders close, you're going to retain those viewers for a longer period of time, which is why they backload events. And so in the first week of these events, so the first few days of a week-long stage race, you'll have these riders who are going to win the jersey for a day, right? Because they may be able to be sprinters, or these people who will never be able to win the general classification over the course of the three weeks, Will attempt to win uh, the first stage because then they get to the wear the yellow jersey because theoretically they're the leader Gosh. in the general classification. Even yeah. though they'll never win the like the long term three week battle, they get to keep that jersey for their collection. So they'll get a a jersey, they'll get a hat like uh, in the Giro because it's a little colder. They'll get like leg warmers, arm warmers, mm. all pink. They'll get a helmet that's pink. Well, maybe that's done by the team. I'm actually not sure, but. A lot of the gear is given to them by the race organizers. Gotcha. And the funny thing about the jersey um, is that given in this era of modern racing where there's so much focus is on aerodynamics, it's actually like a negative to sometimes have the jersey if you're going into a time trial because mm-hmm. they want you to wear the provider's suit. Like the, the, the race organizer will provide you with a suit, but it's not in this day they like fit the riders suit dramatically mm. to the body. Yeah. So it reduces all the, the, le- the drag. But then if you give given, they only have like small, medium, large in the, in the kind of race organizers. Cause I don't know who's going to be winning at that yeah, point yeah. In time. And so it's actually like less aerodynamic. So I think they've changed the rules a little bit where like, you don't have to wear the time trialing suit mm. of the, of the color, but sometimes people still do. I mean, it's minor, but, everything's just like minor gains in this day and age so i think that's a little bit interesting but overall i think there is just a lot of romantics about the jerseys and it's kind of fun to to do that um and and riders will chase after it i mean i think anyone would really want to have a yellow jersey to hang up in their house for the rest of their life You,
1: you mentioned that as kind of something to get to keep so if they win, or if they are awarded the jersey for a stage or for a day, to get to keep it afterwards. and do need to, to give it back or give it to the next guy. That's
0: yeah, cool. it's pretty cool, like. Right? It's kind of you think about it. It's kind of expensive too. I think but for the race, to have like and planning wise, I'm just glad I don't have to plan that because like you'd have to have. I thought about this uh, probably way too much, but you'd have to have like, what if all 21 stages were, were like were won by a large, a person who wore a large. Mm. You know what I mean.
1: Or like all stages, a bunch of other sizes, yeah,
0: yeah. You'd have to print out a bunch of sizes, and it's like not cheap, especially for the smallest stage races. Like for Tour de France, it's relatively pocket change, but for the smallest stage races, it's like expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's lucky that most of the riders are probably as small. Uh, There's less diversity in cycling body type than there is in I don't know NFL football, Um, so. That's kind of neat.
1: You mentioned for the for the time trials, people are potentially wearing kind of custom fitted gear. Are there different different gear that they're wearing at different stages, or depending on the, the specific environment they're in, or is a rider kind of wearing the exact same gear the whole race?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the it differs depending on the stage, and it also differs throughout the stage because the weather can change. We're not in mm, a stadium here, mm. which is interesting. So uh, I was just watching a stage in actually not a stage it was brussels cycling classic um or maybe it was the first stage of the criterium de dauphine i can't remember it was a lot of cycling happening this morning but it started sleeting for five minutes you know you just go over a mountain and it just like has this like random burst of like sleet and so it's just uh, sleeting and so the riders were like unprepared and like trying (laughs) some had like rain jackets in the back of the pocket but others didn't um so it's tricky. What's interesting, so you'll have, like, there's also rules against socks, too. So sock lengths can only be, like, X high, oh, yeah. which is kind of hilarious. But in the in the colder races, uh, what riders do is they just wear leg warmers. So, like, they're getting the same arrow benefit. And so mm-hmm. sometimes they'll wear leg warmers even when it's, like, slightly not cold because, like, you know, it's, like, not legal to wear socks that high, but it is legal to wear leg warmers that high uh, which is kind of a a nifty rule and then they'll do some acrobatics like i'm okay at riding a bike uh but they are able to take off their leg warmers while riding the bike and it has to go oh so they what they do is they unclip their shoe i think they take off their shoe i watched one of them doing this because it's really tight the leg warmers and then they take off like they take off the thing while on the bike (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, dear me. Uh, <laughs> if I ever tried to do that, I don't know about you, Nick, but I'd be,
1: I'd be on the floor instantly. So. And I imagine they're going pretty quick while they're doing this as well. So yeah, uh, low, low margin of yeah. error. Well.
0: There was a rider recently, said Kuss, who was, his battery had died. So now all the shifters are like battery done. So there's no wires, but he couldn't change gears because his battery died. So he was reaching back into the back wheel, like the, you know where the gears are in the back wheel, yeah, while yeah. on the bike and going like seventy kilometers an hour, Jeez. trying to like change his battery. And I'm just like, <laughs> wow, wow! Like the announcers were like having heart attacks too. So you know it's bad when 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 the pundits who are like usually oh. like past riders uh, who kind of migrate to being pundits and announcers that when when they're concerned, it was like yeah, it was a little aggressive. So the the where They'll wear that, uh, and then they'll take off. It's hard to plan, kind of. Some riders wear gloves. Some riders don't because it gives them blisters. You'll see that. It's kind of interesting to take note of who's Mm -hmm. riding it, who's who's not. Most of them will. Um, I think one of the big differences that people, when they first, the advice I give people when they first, I don't give a lot of advice because I'm not the best cyclist, but I do give the advice that usually you don't have enough weight on your feet. So mm-hmm. why do you put more weight through the pedals? It takes off pressure off your butt, takes pressure off your hands. You just like generally have a much more enjoyable time riding. But most people aren't powerful enough to have all their weight or like constantly pressing through the pedals. Yeah. And so they'll get tired hands and they'll get tired butts. And you'll realize as you kind of progress as a cyclist and you can put more weight through the feet that it actually takes a lot of pressure off those areas. And it's just like a much more enjoyable experience. So anyway, that was a long-winded say, way of saying. Uh, sometimes they have gloves, sometimes they don't. Helmets—they of course have now these days, which is good. They used to have these like rubber helmets, uh, mm. and they also used to only use them on the downhill. So back in the day, they would just like keep them in their back pockets, store it there, and when they're going down the hill, they're like, "Huh, oh, we yeah, might well. die. <laughs> let, let, let's pop, pop these. Let's pop these rubber helmets on." <laughs> uh so yeah uh, not not super great there but uh yeah it's, it's impressive the gear and how far it's come there was this 1998 1989 ooh, 1988 1988 giro stage so you we were just watching the giro organizer He wanted to make it super epic and so you put it on this mountain that people had never done before there was snowbakes above their head oh. it was completely freezing and they were just talking about the difference in gear between now and then and they were Basically, they were rubbing lanolin on their bodies to stay warm wow. because uh, they didn't really have anything else. Um, they like, Everything froze and uh, it's tricky um, to stay warm. But I think a few kind of new fangled things like obviously Gore-Tex is a big one, but also the neoprene gloves mm-hmm. are a really huge breakthrough uh, that came so that your your hands don't like completely freeze when you're in the cold and wet. But overall, it's uh, it's tricky. It's still not easy. Some riders run cold. Some riders run hot. I think it's just like all humans. Yeah.
1: And in terms of kind of like body temperature and temperature control, like what's kind of happening if a rider is getting too hot? Like what's happening? What's wrong? If the rider is getting too cold, like how's that affecting performance? Like what's what happens on either extreme?
0: Yeah. Great question. And I believe this is this is huge, and I think it's huge mainly because the heat aspect is the is the big one, which we can really dig into here when when riders get too cold, it, it, it will start there because I think I can knock that one out quickly and then' live we'll on to the heat aspect. Mm. But riders usually generate a fair amount of heat. So even if they're riding at four degrees, when you're in the bunch in the peloton, you're like a little bit mm-hmm. warmer because the body's all around you.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, when you're out of the bunch, You can definitely freeze, especially when you're going up a climb, the temperature drops. Uh, There was this classic stage in the 2019 Giro, I think, between Garen Thomas uh, and the Canadian rider at the time, Michael Woods. And they were going up together, right? It was a final final climb. It was freezing out. It was snowing. You know, the the TV cameras weren't working very well. So, like, you really only see them coming out of this snowstorm. And you just see garen Thomas, who was, you know, I think you watched a little of the Giro. He was winning for a bit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. um, but anyway, in this one, his hands were just frozen, and he just slipped off the bike. Oh, uh, wow. his, his left hand just slipped, and then he slips like right on the finish line, and so the Canadian wins. Um, so staying warm is obviously very important. Uh, and in the Giro, riders were getting shipped tea, like hot tea, and um, you know, eventually, you know. You just try and keep warm, but it's a lot easier to keep warm than it is to reduce your body temperature. When you get too hot, especially with global warming, it's becoming more and more of an issue that riders are overheating. Mm-hmm. So it's now basically always riders will do their warm up because you have to do a warm up to, like, you know, you, you do your yoga to kind of warm up the muscles and what have you. So you yeah. kinda of have to do the warm-up to be able to perform right from the gun, which is needed now in these races. They're no longer like training rides that you can do to warm up. They're wearing ice packs. So they'll oh, wow. ride on the rollers on the trainer and they'll wear ice packs to keep the core body temperature low. And then throughout the race, the domestiques or the rider or the leader will go back to the car, get uh ice socks specifically they just have like socks filled with ice Mm -hmm. that they'll put down the rider's back and then Mm -hmm. they'll repetitively do that throughout the race time and time again and it's also why helmets have um are really like trying to increase airflow because just like when your head gets hot like your brain starts to fog and all that Mm -hmm. jazz and so helmets are actually really not only trying to be light these days, but also trying to be super, super breathable. And then finally, I think probably the most interesting aspect is nutrition. The one of the best ways to get your body warm or get your body cold is through uh, food temperature. Mm-hmm. So they'll have Yambo Visma was one of the teams that was using Never Second. So Never Second is a brand that offers nutrition uh, in like thirty gram, sixty gram. Segments, which is we can get into that, but it's it's essentially a way like riders want to take in about 120 grams of carbs per hour. They offered this product that was like a slushy, so they're trying out this slushy that like it was still easy to eat on the bike because obviously a lot of food has to be easily eatable, yeah. edible. But then it was also like kind of frozen and like easy to take in the car and like put in the freezer. Yeah. And all the teams wanted it; they're all jealous of Yomovizva last year Mm-mm. because like this product was rev- revolutionary basically like it like offered you the right amount of carbs and also got you cool yeah it's, it's a hard thing and riders will do heat training specifically so they'll like ride and then go into sauna or wow. sauna and then ride because your body does adapt over the course of a few weeks yeah, yeah to ride better and it produces sweat better all that jazz it's also tricky if you're a heavy sweater right you gotta mm. they do sweat tests to make sure like are you uh, sweating a lot because I need to take in more sodium all that kind of happens these days and it's it's a really big is- issue because a lot of these events are happening in areas that are super hot like velta happens in August in Spain and it's almost always extremely hot and they've debated mm-hmm. switching it to April because it's just I think oh, we wow. talked about this in the first episode just because
1: it's like so hot, hot all yeah. the time is there you mentioned they're eating like cold stuff and putting ice cubes on the back. Are there any, I I know in other aspects of the race, there's like restrictions put on them, like their socks can't be too, too tall. Are there restrictions around cooling techniques or do you like foresee some of this stuff being um, made, made restricted?
0: It's a good question. I think the UCI isn't, I would say the classiest body, their lack on enforcement. They just don't do a good job at enforcing the rules they put out. For example, the sock rule, they almost never actually enforce and they've been forcing it less lately. So, uh, but I think everyone wants riders to be safe and overheating and, 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 and stress from that is definitely like, no one wants to see that. So I don't think they'll ever put a ban on that. What they do ha- currently have a ban on is, and they'll probably change, is glucose monitoring. So mm. there, the continuous glucose monitors that people have on their arms, they don't allow that in races. And I think most pundits and people think they will, because essentially you're currently allowing riders to track their power data, right? So riders know exactly how much power data on their head unit they're outputting. And so they can match their effort based on that power, because you get really fine tuned to how much power you're outputting. And so the why they're arguing, like, I guess the benefit of having a continuous glucose monitor is you can better time your efforts. Like if your glucose is low, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be ready to do an attack and like stay for a long period of time out there. Mm-hmm. But you can do the exact same thing with power uh, to some degree. Uh, it's it's more helpful to have a, a glucose monitor because then you can, you know, eat a little bit, wait a little bit. But then, then again, riders are judging like, hey, I'm riding this power and I'm feeling, feeling like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're already judging it and then they'll decide whether to go or not. And so the glucose monitor is kind of just a gauge, also where it's like, okay, my glucose monitor is reading this. Can I go or not? It's a little bit more kind of fine tuned. But I think what they're waiting for the UCI is is really for it to become understood by teams across the board, mm-hmm. used by teams across the board in training, have a like a wide enough field of use and then they'll be like okay it's legal right mm-hmm. what gotcha. they don't want to be doing is essentially allowing it before enough teams have they don't want one team or two teams to use it and have complete domination so, so they want the, the usage to be spread across the board so they're just kind of waiting for it to be more mainstream but that's what they don't allow right now yeah,
1: yeah. sense you mentioned UCI is this like some global governance for cycling or what's there?
0: yeah you yeah, uci so any i sometimes make the joke that any you know acronym that you don't know what it stands for in cycling it's going to be a french acronym so it's going to oh, stand okay. for something in french yeah. uh most of the things just because like the uci is actually from switzerland and so they also speak french there and german and dutch i think they're just like very multilingual. But the UCI has its home base in Switzerland, and it's the governing body. It stands for the Union Cycliste Internationale. There I am butchering the French pronunciation, but it kind of, it's the head governing body for all these cyclists. It will also attempt to enforce rules. So this the race organizers and the race commissaires will... Enforce the rules. It's a good way of, oh, this is a good way of looking at it. It's like the states, United States. So every state will have its own court level mm-hmm. and then they'll raise it to the Supreme Court if they're like, you know, they don't know what to do with it or they, yeah, they just want to throw it up there. It's the same thing with the UCI. The race organizers and race commissaries are like the states who are enforcing the rules during their race. And then if there's a complaint against the race organizers or for some reason, you know, the, the, the head body wants to enforce it, then it goes to the UCI, and the UCI won't enforce it. Uh, in terms of, like, infringements it can happen from both the race organizers and also the UCI, uh, the UCI typically ha- handles doping complaints or, okay, or yeah. water complaints, uh, and we'll try to enforce that, because that's not, that's kind of not by the race organizer, per se, so, because uh, it spans across all the races that the rider would have, would have been doing, uh, and the UCI also, recently they, in 2011, they instituted that agents for riders have to be registered. And so you'll take a test, it costs 600 francs, and you can then represent a rider. There's still a lot of gray area where, like, you can, like, be one team's press officer while you're being an agent for a rider mm-hmm. and getting them hired by another team. Like, there's still, like, a lot of, eh not super great stuff that happens in the, in the writer agent industry, but it's a lot better than it was. So,
1: yeah, that's good. And when you say agent, I'm talking about some of the kind of managing them as if they were like an actor would have like an agent helping them deal with the contract. Yeah. With their career. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so you're legally, uh, these writers are either self-employed contractors or employees of the team. Most opt to be self-employed contractors. They lose out on the benefit in like the holidays Um, Hmm. So I guess maybe if you were in like a super left-leaning, if the team was registered in a super left-leaning country, you may want to be an employee more so because you get more benefits. But then again, uh, most are self-employed contractors. And just like in the NFL, the NBA, you know, you have player agents who will negotiate. You can also uh, have agents now that will negotiate for these riders. It's also the case that you can legally have your family members be your agents without taking the test, which has led to some like really bad stuff. Specifically, um, everyone kind of jokes about Remco Evenapool, who's one of the big six, you know, one of the big six fast riders um, who are really going well at this point in time. He's also Belgium. So he faces the most press criticism because they love their cycling. And anyway, his dad I think signed Remco to a, over dinner one night to Patrick Lefebvre, who's this kind of character in in the cycling scene, who owns Alpecin De Kernick. Maybe not owns, but yeah, I think he does own it. And then he basically got uh, Remco Aventonpol at a super low ball, like it's oh, yeah. 1.5 million, which is is high uh, a a year, but for someone of Remco's caliber, let's take Tade Bagacch is probably getting paid 10 million a year. So the same caliber rider, but getting five X, like he's literally losing wow. five times the amount of money. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, yeah. So I think the agent industry uh, and the, none of these numbers are public either. So that's the really poor thing about the industry oh, is like, yeah, like the NHL, yeah. like if I go look up an NHL, I can see what they're getting paid in yeah, um, this totally. public, public knowledge. Uh, whereas with riders contracts, none of this is public. It's all the media guessing or the media getting information from some insider mm-hmm. source and, like, seeing yeah. the numbers, but it's never
1: public. That's, that's super interesting. Um, I'm going to circle back to something you mentioned before. You use the term race commissaire. but these like people at the specific races making sure they run smoothly, hired by the tour, or what's yeah, the rule?
0: Yeah, so the race commissaires, I actually don't know who they're hired by, to be fair. That's a really good question. I believe... I thought they were just done by the race organizers uh, who would hire, like, have race conversers, but maybe they're actually from the UCI, and they go to each race. I'm sure there's got to be an accreditation there somewhere. So, yeah, I'll look into that, but uh, the race conversers, you'll have about three to four uh, per race. What they do is well you actually might have more but they're on the finish line and they're in the cars during the race so you have one on the finish line who can judge the photo finish because theoretically have two people tie you're supposed to have even though this happened early in the year you're supposed to have like a one kilometer sprint from the finish line like you just take these riders out of the race and like plop them down and then i like, go race and Uh-oh. then see who wins again <laughs> but um they can judge yes or no whether or not uh the rider wins, I guess, in the photo finish. But then they're also in the car making sure that all the rules are followed by... Because it, there's a lot of organization that goes into these races, right? You have a bunch of riders who then have two to three team cars behind them, supporting them. Mm-hmm. And then you have like breaks that happen. And you're you're allowed to send... Once a break is larger than a minute from the main peloton, you're allowed to send... Or it's 30 seconds, minute, 30 seconds, one of the two. You're allowed to send cars... Team cars through for the riders who are in the break. So, for example, if Anyos has a rider in the break, they're allowed to send one of their team cars past the peloton behind the break, so that they can support their rider faster if he gets a flat or a punch or You know, it's chain drops, what have you, or her. And the race commentator will also like enforce, like yeah basically yell at people someone's giving someone a sticky bottle which means like you know someone goes back to get their bottle and gets pulled by the car ah, uh, which is quite common yeah. and then they'll also sometimes do barrages which is a barrage is when let's say a rider crashes out and then or crashes or gets a mechanical for some reason sometimes the race commissary will deem it legal to allow the rider to catch back up to the brake with aid so they'll allow oh, wow. the rider to ride oh. behind the car. Yeah, if it wasn't their fault for example the crash, mm, okay. then they'll allow the rider to draft behind the team car back to the peloton. But then sometimes they're like no, it was the rider's fault or like no, we're not going to let you pace back to the peloton. They'll cause a they'll they'll issue a barrage, which is just basically a split between the peloton and the team cars. And they'll say, no, you cannot come up. And so essentially then the rider cannot come up with aid through the barrage and catch back up the peloton. They have to do it like physically through their own capabilities. Mm-hmm. And what again, is- yeah, it's interesting, uh, but it's so gray, right? Mm-hmm. They it, The it's race is call. It, yeah. it's such a judgment call. And so it really depends oof, on the race commissary. Uh, and that's one of the nuances of cycling, and it's great is that there's so much gray area Mm -hmm. and that anything can happen. And so uh, I don't think you'll ever have a sport that's really defined because cycling, as you know, is not played within a box. It's not played within a stadium. And so I think that kind of goes with terrain. Uh, The race compensators will always have so many variables and so many gray areas to deal with. You can never define a rule for every specific variation that happens so there will always be this gray area in the
1: sport and then in terms of let's say i'm a spectator how can i tell who the race commissaires are and how can i tell like in a situation like this like there's a crash they may need to make a call whether or not you know what I mean they get um helped up to the peloton or not would that be like announced somehow like as a spectator how do i know who they are and like what decisions they're making
0: you don't know. Okay. Well, so if you're a spectator at home, so this is the thing. If watching cycling in in person isn't isn't super great because like the riders go so fast fast by you. You'll see a lot of people just watching it on their phone on the side, which makes a lot of sense, just because there's too much stuff going on. Um, but you, the race commissaire will be in the car that uh, will be colored for the state for the the race itself. So. Okay. You'll have the race commissaire, I believe, is usually in a yellow car in the Tour de France, Uh, but it's a good question. I don't specifically know what thing, what color there is. The best way to kind of figure out is is to see who kind of flags the start of the race. So you'll have all these riders riding, and then there'll be the race commissaire in front of them, and then to start the race, they'll wave the flag, and then the riders will ride past. Uh, and that person and that car will be your race commissaire. But if you're not around for the start, because I don't blame you, they're like 200-kilometer races. Uh, To be fair, though, the most interesting part of races is at the start and then potentially at the end, but almost almost always at the start. Um, And so you'll be watching this, and then it's through the announcers. So if you were Uh, listening to the audio, they'll let you know what's kind of going on because there's no – I mean – I would argue that cycling has a long way to go in terms of the UI they provide for the races where they don't have a good heads up display. They can mm-hmm. be doing so much more. Sometimes they offer like power data of riders if like riders have allowed that to some degree, which is super neat. but even I don't really care about the power data. I'm not like a big power nerd, but I think seeing the hills that would be coming up uh, mm-hmm. on the map, like knowing how close those are, knowing when some of these key markers are coming up, these key turns could be like in a heads up display or like having, you know, like little blurbs of how the race commissary is talking. Mm, F1 did this recently where they, they allowed you to hear like, they they didn't anymore because like of their scandal in 2021 or whatever, but they used to let the race commissary there uh, would, you could hear them talking to the team directors over the radio. Um, And so, I think that would be super neat. Sometimes in races in the Flemish Classics this year, you had you heard the team radios of certain cars. I thought it was super neat as well. There's so much more that cycling can be doing to make races interesting for the viewers, but they're just not doing it right now. It's because it's kind of like an old sport. It's kind of like this all, it's like trying to go through this change right now. And you have these old 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds who are fighting against the change. Uh, or these old broadcasters, I think the broadcasters is the main issue, like R- Rise, or they've been locked into these contracts for so long and no one's kind of like competing against them. Mm-hmm. So they have no emphasis to change. Um, yeah, you won't know essentially, gotcha. uh, other than if you hear through the announcer or Twitter. Twitter's pretty big, to be honest. Oh, wow. It's one of those, yeah, for, for, it's not big in most sports, but for some reason, cycling loves its Twitter.
1: So, and so in theory, the commissaire has like a radio to all of the teams and that's how they're kind of telling them, yeah, you can, you can help them out or no, you can't essentially.
0: Yeah. Radio is a huge part of cycling. So radios are in all the riders' ears. You'll see oh, wow. it on their backs. These like little bulbs, riders have now started putting on their chest instead so that they oh it's more aerodynamic that's why they put it on their chest apparently they've done wind tunnel testing wow. it's more aerodynamic to have the radio on the chest and you'll, you'll have all the riders on the team and then if they are speaking to the radio we'll see them press their chest and then they'll like be talking like this blah blah blah, blah. Uh, and so that's like them basically saying something to the radio but it's essential for riders to know what's happening in the race because it's hard for us as viewers to understand what's happening in the race, let alone being in the race itself. It's even more difficult. And so without this radio communication back and forth, you really don't know what's going on. And if a rider gets really frustrated, um, it's like a huge no-no. You, you never do this, but if it gets super frustrated, they like, take the radio out of their ear. Oh. Uh, and they're just like, they're like, fuck, I'm done with this. Kind of. <laughs> and just to show you how big radio is is that in the olympics they don't allow radios so it's the one race of the year that they don't allow radios and there was this big huge upset in 2022 where the dutch uh, team was stacked like you couldn't have a more stacked team it was like america in nba uh going to the olympics and so uh they're going um And their leader crosses the line and raises her hand as if she had won the race. Little did she know that a rider had gone in a breakaway, was two minutes ahead of her, and had already won the race. Um, Because she just didn't realize that there was a break ahead. It caused like a a major uproar. And it kind of goes to show that without that radio, she didn't see this rider go. Maybe the rider went around the corner. People forgot. There was multiple breaks that happened. It got confusing. Mm -hmm. You didn't know who was who, where. And they just like assume they were in first and they weren't first. (laughs) This lady had already won, but no one knew. So you also have in European races, the breakaway depends on the race. Again, it's really kind of weird. Some races allow this. Some races don't, but the people on the motorbikes, because motorbikes are a huge part of the race, they'll kind of cycle up and they'll show the time gap to the Peloton, to the breakaway. So the breakaway will know of the time gap Mm. because the Moto will come every minute or so and say, Hey, you're two minutes and 30 seconds ahead of the Peloton. And so they'll kind of have a gauge of like, I don't know why they need to do this anymore with the radio and with people like the DS's, director sportifs in the car, like listening and watching the races on TV on their phone, but. They still do it. So
1: that you'll see the moto comes by and just like holds up a sign and
0: that's what they're doing. They're holding up the, the time
1: gap. And that would be the people on the motorcycle, they're not from a specific team. They're kind of again like race organizers who be holding this sign up.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they're just they're hired by the race organizers. Like I think it costs like six hundred and fifty an hour for the helicopter, plus people on the helicopter, and then the motors are like also some some money as well. Motors have been kind of criticized uh because there's some there was too many and i think in 2019 in one of the flanders classics someone got run over by a motorcycle oh, like one of the cyclists oh man and he died yeah not mm-hmm. not a great way to die and and also i think the biggest complaint about the motos is that they aero draft people so if you have a motorbike in front of you by 50 meters or something it's like still a huge It's like 10 watt savings i'm butchering these numbers people so please do not hold me accountable for these numbers but if even if the even if the motorcycle is like 100 meters in front it's still like a huge benefit and then if it becomes like five meters which it often is it's dramatic how much of a benefit it is so you'll see riders who in like a group who don't want the moto pacing someone maybe because they want to make it harder on that person you'll see them like shooting them off with their hand kind of like a waving motion cause they like get off cuz like they know how much benefit the moto is and see. it's true yeah like riders are really uh it's it's dramatic and and also the crazy thing is you get moto benefit even if the moto's behind you i'm not i didn't take science in university <laughs> but somehow you get benefit from the riders from the moto being behind you through some like aerodynamic magic and so you also get people pushing them away that way too but it's a trade-off right like you want to have good quality camera and mm. at the same time you want a fair race so you want to it's a trade-off you'll you'll never get rid of them well oh this is what i dug into a little bit is that you might get rid of them because of drones because on drones you don't get a lot of aero benefit not a lot True. there Uh, And so you can kind of get the benefit of both worlds. And so we'll see. I don't think the motorbike will ever go away, but maybe you can replace some of the busyness on the roads and the congestion that happens with the motorbikes with some drones here and there. So that would be kind of a major benefit. But I've drones have been used more this year, but not too much. It's still tricky unless the course is like a circuit based course. Mm -hmm. Or near the end, it's hard to use drones. I recently watched a mountain bike race, my first mountain bike race. This is a little tangential, but I was like really surprised at the quality that they put into that race filming. It was well done. They had a drone in there through the like the wood section and it was like it would just go for one segment. Super well done. Like down low fallen riders? Yeah, like down low fallen riders and then like far enough away there was one point where it was like twisting back and forth and i was like how do you know if you're going straight through these twists that you're not going to hit the rider behind that was also going through the twist yeah, the, yeah. the drone guy can only see in front of him <laughs> and if this twist switchbacks like anyway i was getting stressed but uh <laughs> it, was, it was right i get stressed too easy but, um but it was right at the end of the race so it was intense but it really kind of added to the, the action and i think It could be more in cycling, but again, you kind of need that circuit based. So uh, the motors will always probably be there. Do the motors do anything else that interesting? No, they generally just like annoy riders and stuff. But you'll have, oh, you'll have more pundits these days go on motorbikes as well. So you'll have from GCN who does a lot of the filming not filming but they they stream it for a lot of the worldwide audience they'll have pundits that now go on motorbikes and kind of like are in the race themselves and i think they offer very good analysis because they usually have like a past rider on the motorbike and then they'll be like saying like oh that rider looks like he's tired and like you just can't see in the middle of the pack from when you're watching the race but the motorbikes that come up the side can actually look into the pack they can see Mm -hmm. how the riders are riding. They can kind of judge better because they're so close. And I think the analysis they've started to offer there is really intriguing. And I think they should do more of it. I don't think they should use Philip Joubert. Uh, I'm, I don't think, sorry, Philip, but I don't think he's a very good commentator, but I really like Jens Voigt, uh, as a commentator, uh, when he's on the motorbike, I think he did a great job. So, uh, he's like this German who's just got quite a character. So I would watch racing just to hear his voice, to be honest. Uh,
1: something else. I want to circle back to the radios for a sec. I think you mentioned the term for this, but who, so I'm a cyclist. I'm talking on my radio. Who am I actually talking to and where are they? Like are they in some command center somewhere? Or are they actually, like, on in the car, like, on the race? Or yeah, who, who are they talking to? Yeah, so the riders
0: are talking to uh, the rest of the team members. will be able to hear them. But they're also talking to the director sportifs within the car. So the cars will have usually two director sporties Teams are composed of 16, 12, some number of director sportees. I don't know. Don't quote me on that but there's usually one or two in the car and then there's a mechanic in the back seat so if the rider has a mechanical mechanic can get out so it's a real really fast or give it a replacement bike and then mm-hmm. the directors sportifs are in the car dealing with the riders for strategy so i'll we'll have like a video going of like the tv screen of like hey this is these are the riders these are where they are they'll also use vel viewer we can dig into vel viewer in a little bit but it's just like Kind of revolution revolutionized the way riders and teams map out the route. Uh, you can basically like see mm-hmm. a 3D version of the route, and then put markers down like, oh, there's a big hill here, or there's a piece of road furniture, like a big roundabout. Take the left, and or like we're gonna want to we're gonna want to sprint here, or we want to try and sprint here, mm-hmm. and this can get all shift to the rider's head unit. For their Garmin or their Ooh. Wahoo or whatever. But then from the car, the DS can also make changes on the fly. Since there's so many tactics going on, they'll be dealing with like, hey, are we going to allow this guy in the brake? Are we going to try and catch up to the brake? Should we go now? And so there's always this back and forth between the riders and everyone else. And so, yeah, raiders are super essential. So you're talking back to these, these team cars, and then these team cars are kind of like following behind um, recently, a little interesting tidbit was that a race car from AG2R, which was a French team riding the Giro, it hit the rider, it hit the back of a rider, like it basically took a rider down. Like it didn't, it wasn't, uh-huh. like the rider was fine, luckily, like he just had like a big scrape and whatever and all that jazz. The race car was relegated from the race. So there's two types of relegations. You can get relegated for the day or you can get relegated for the okay. entire race, uh so you don't really want to obviously get relegated for the entire race because then you're down a car which is essential if like you know you need to bring a car up to put a rider in the brake thankfully that was like stage 19 so they were relegated for the entire event but it was only two more stages left so it wasn't like the end of the the world apparently riding in these cars is crazy because apparently it's just like stopping like it's like the most intense ride ever uh to be in the back of one of these cars just because to be able to move with the pace of the peloton move when you need to get past these riders when you need to it's just like a lot of stress i don't think i'd want to do it but apparently it's it's something like that they'll also have a team car in the front generally that's maybe not part of the race but it's scouting out to see how the weather is to see how the road is yeah. all that jazz and then they can warn riders on the way back a thing they do often in time trials is they'll have you know the crappier riders are going first and so like the the less strong riders are going first and so if it's a wet day or the they'll say like hey this corner is hard or this corner is wet and that's you know they'll radio mm-hmm. that back to the team who hasn't gone yet with the better riders so the better riders will know hey watch out for this corner and so you get a lot of benefit from your riders in front through this radio so radio just provides so much to this race i mean communication is key with humans as well and so it's also key in cycling, but potentially more so than other sports. You know, I guess they're all on the court usually, so it's it's usually easier to, to talk to one another. Rather, with this mm-hmm. super spread out terrain, you still need to talk to one another, and radio is the best way to do so it.
1: You made the comparison to F1 earlier, and in my mind, I was imagining like, these cars kind of talking to their rider but it's not they have multiple riders it's like self several riders that they're trying to coordinate all at the same time while they're also driving yeah on
0: the same you get so some social intense. dynamics in there that are interesting at times so for example uh in the movistar documentary which is a good one to break into if no one if someone wants to watch it it's on netflix it's pretty good pretty easy to watch there was this <laughs> there's so much dysfunction within that team but The the there was like a a day when Mark Solaire, when he was still on the team, he just like got so frustrated again. He just like pulls out his like earphone and just like throws it away. But also like, you know, uh, there was this also day where Miguel Angel Lopez, one of the riders, he literally stopped riding because he was so upset. And why he was so upset was because he needed to make a break. Like he needed to go after a break, basically chase the break so they wouldn't lose his time but he swore that the team told him not to and the team theoretically didn't but they also didn't provide the radio i think to the tv show at the time because they were concerned mm-hmm. but then they also thought uh miguel and De Lopez also thought moss the other gc contender was told him not to when moss said something that could have been taken either way like it could have been like no don't go but also could have been like go like it I, it was this weird line mm-hmm. where it was kind of this gray area, and so you had this kind of conflict between the two of them saying, like, oh, you didn't want me to win, blah, blah, blah. Oh, the team doesn't want me to win. And they just, like, literally stop riding his bike. And he's, like, fourth in GC. Whoa. It was, just like, a super bad move. Nice. Super bad look for him, to be honest, but also, like, not the best on the team. But um, for, some, for a rider just to, like, stop in... It's like someone like just like walking off the soccer pitch, basically when they're playing a soccer game, yeah, yeah. and just saying no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ride anymore.
1: But potentially after like multiple days of having already played soccer, and then being like, okay, no more soccer. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: it yeah. I guess yeah. There's, there's definitely endurance involved in. Um, it was actually kind of hilarious. The Garen Thomas, one of his podcasts, he he hosted Bale, who's this Welsh soccer player, um, and he got him onto the podcast. And you could just tell how little he, the bail knew about like cycling in general, right? It's just like mm-hmm. um, it is a it is a different sport, and uh, so that's what we're trying to do here is trying to kind of demystify the world, and uh, kind of explain what's so
1: nuanced and exciting about. Come on, I got I got one more question for you. I think you light light would end. I heard the term nature break being used when I was watching as well. Can You go into that? Yeah, I think it's one <laughs> yeah, of
0: the it's... most no, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say it's my most enjoyable aspect of watching cycling. But no, it is not not the most enjoyable aspect of watching cycling. But I do find it enjoyable to, to to like toss a coin, whether the announcer will discuss the rider taking a piss from their bike or they won't uh, the day they didn't. Like You could clearly see some riders are good enough to, to take nature breaks while they're on the bike. Like They get really good at it. I don't know yeah i'm not gonna be good enough to do that one day and especially for the poor (laughs) woman that will never be able to do that but uh you know there could be some tool but um they basically either get off the bike uh, and then they'll try and all do it at the same time the peloton kind of look like oh you're taking an h Break. yeah they'll go up to each other and be like hey i need to take piss or like you know like oh i need to go to the washroom or or all that jazz and mm-hmm. then I'll try and take a nature break at the same time. Yeah, one of the
1: races. That's hilarious. I didn't yeah, know that. it's hilarious.
0: At uh, one of the races early in the spring, I was watching. It was just like one day race. I don't, I don't remember the name, but the whole Peloton's like, okay, we're going to take a nature break. So they all get off to the nature break, and these three riders just go. They're just like, oh, fuck it. I, I don't need a nature break. And so in the past, I'd be like super frowned upon to do that. But now there's like no respect, as they say, air quotes, in the Peloton, and people will just mm. go. There was also this big issue in uh, about a month ago with the women's tour where it was, uh, I believe it was La Velta, but I could be wrong about that, uh, where Movistar attacked during a nature break with these six riders. It was like, oh, you shouldn't have attacked because you're taking nature break. But Movistar explained super well, like we had already planned to attack there yesterday. Like it was just like the right Mm. time to attack. And honestly, you yeah, shouldn't yeah. be taking a nature break with the entire team. Um, like, that's just, like, kind of, like, is a bad idea because then you have all the riders out of the yeah. race. Overall, though, it's still a very contested issue. And one of the funniest things, though, is Garen Thomas seems to always get fined for, you not allowed to, to take a wash and break in front of other people. So you can't take a washroom break in front of, like, viewers. But unfortunately, as cycling is becoming more popular, it's harder and harder to find spaces where you Uh, can take a nature break. And so he's fined, like, 500 francs, I think, per per time um, for for using the washroom too close. to riders... I mean, to be fair, you could get off your bike and you'd be much less likely to have... Because you're, like, instead of, like, a minute of potentially... Going to the washroom in front of someone, you you know, you know, you're at a spot where you, no one's gonna be. Yeah. So it's a little bit on uh his fault that he's kind of you know taking nature break at the wrong time, but overall, it's still um it's interesting in that sense. So yeah, if you see a rider taking going to the washroom and no one's talking about it, they're probably going to the washroom. If you're wondering. Um, <laughs> just because so that, yeah they usually try not to discuss it but if it's super boring they'll discuss it no, i appreciate all the questions nick i think we got a lot out of this episode and hope other people did as well uh i really liked the kind of like and forth we have here and just kind of digging through some of the nuances and what people find interesting and what people don't and if people have comments okay. and, and questions please send them in or if there's things you like things you don't like or rooms for improvement that we can do We'd also love to hear them. We're just trying to do this through like a, a learning process and getting better at it. Um, and, and thanks so much to Nick for coming on and, and taking the time to to ask questions about a sport that I think we all should find exciting and we should all learn about. So appreciate
1: it. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. Learned a lot as always.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been Brent from Pro Cycling Bets, and we look forward to you listening to the next one. We'd graciously appreciate you leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast player you're listening from, signing up to our newsletter at procyclingbets.com or following us on social media, specifically subscribing to Procycling Bets on YouTube. All the links are in the show notes. Ciao.